Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, I'm one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and I'm one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week we're going to continue our episode about juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Last week I was joined by Dr. Diana Beasley, a general paediatrician based at Morriston Hospital in Swansea, and by Dr. Nick Wilkinson, a paediatric consultant based at the University Hospital of Wales who has a specialist interest in rheumatology, and they started this episode for us. So if you haven't had a chance yet, it's probably best to go back and have a listen to the first part of this episode before you continue here. Anyway, let's get started. Um, so, so we've covered systemic onset um, juvenile arthritis, and I think what you mentioned yourself earlier for for this case specifically, Dana, was did you say oligoarthritis? Yes, Have I that's that right. right. That's right, oligo juvenile arthritis, um, which means it's four or less than four joints um, affected in the first six months. Um, for academic purposes, if you have um, more if more joints affected at a later stage, then that is an extended oligoarthritis. But really, it, it's not helpful for practical purposes. So in addition to the oligo JIA, we also have polyarticular JIA, which by the definition um, affects more than, than four joints. Mm-hmm. Um, with the oligo, we find more it's the big joints, the knees, the ankles with the poly it seems to be more that it can be the knee and the ankles but it can also often affect the fingers smaller joints like that mm. and just to supplement to that then obviously there can be axial involvement and that can be any of any of these so you can it can be in an oligo or a poly so axial by axial i mean obviously typically spine that's a very late finding but sacroiliac joints and then some of us in rheumatology would also consider shoulders, ankles and jaw as part of sort of axial joints. Mm. They, and the reason for bringing that up is they tend to respond to different treatments. So the peripheral joints, we tend to start with methotrexate. When there's axial joints, we tend to be thinking more about TNF inhibitors, so mm. drugs like etanercept and uh, adalimumab. Um, and that's why we then move away from this classification. Mm. Also in the classification, there's enthesitis-related arthritis, which tends to be more boys, um, older than six. Um, again, asymmetric in its presentation. Again, larger joints typically. Mm. Um, then there's a psoriatic arthritis, where you may get a dactylitis. Um, but again, axial involvement with that, as well as with the enthesitis-related arthritis. And then you've got um, uh, inflammatory bowel associated arthritis. Often kids will present with um, joints in IBD associated arthritis before they have their gut symptoms. Mm. And so then you so that's why each time they come back you need to be thinking, is there other organ involvement? Mm. And so gut symptoms will be something we search about. And then if you've got incongruent findings such as a very high ESR CRP, and I'm talking about sort of 80 to 100, again, you're thinking, well, is this conventional arthritis? Is something else brewing here? Mm. And, and so and typically it would end up as being an IBD-associated arthritis. So these are just subtleties that, 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 that can be considered. And I think we have covered the, the, the spectrum there. Of So it's, um, as Dino has said, so the systemic onset JIA, very small proportion, about 5% of the population. Mm. 
for commonness is oligo, or what we call persistent oligo, i.e. after six months it remains at four or less joints, the larger joints. Then there is extended oligo, which is where it becomes a poly after six months. There's poly, which is more than four joints at presentation or at diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Emphysitis-related arthritis, which is typically associated with HLA B27. This um, older, typically boys, um, asymmetric presentation. Um, then psoriatic arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease-associated arthritis. And then you've got undifferentiated arthritis, where it may fall into one or two groups. Mm. But that's for research purposes. Right. Wow. So a lot, a lot to keep tabs of there. And, but, but is it useful? Well, well, probably not, because the most important thing is, coming back to what Diana was talking about, is, is the level of disability. Mm. But what we've also talked about then is what, what type of joints do we think will respond to treatment and which treatment. Mm. And, and so we're now guided more by that. There are those in the research field who feel that they're going to be certain genetic types. Um, and so there's a lot of research into that now. And so people are sort of putting aside the classification and thinking about, well, can we define things genetically? Mm. At the moment, pragmatically, it is about which joints involved, what's the level of disability, is the treatment, is the child responsive to treatment or not, and then how we move through that. And then for me as well, it's about, well, wrists are really important. Um, to a child for hand function. Mm. So if it was just wrist involvement, I'm more likely to be accelerating treatment. So even if this is an oligo, I'm not going to be just sitting on one wrist. I'm going to be trying to get, especially if they're right-handed is the right wrist, I'm going to be accelerating through treatment. So the, the diagnosis then or the, the classification is just not important. Mm. And it's the same with hip. If there's a, a single hip involved or a hip and a knee or a hip and a hand, again, I'm going to be accelerating through treatment because you just don't want to lose um, um, lots of function of your hip mm. and that you typically until recent treatment strategies is one of the first joints to be replaced. Now, that's really helpful and I think it's a really useful jumping off point so as we can go perhaps into a deeper dive into how we treat these conditions if that's okay with you both. So from my perspective mm. as a generalist I'm not diving in with um, disease modifying medication. Mm. My first step would be anti-inflammatory medication so I like to prescribe non-steroidals um, particularly naproxen because naproxen can be given twice a day which is far more helpful than ibuprofen which is mm. three times a day. So that is not practical for children who have to attend school. Um, so we're trying to make things practical for families. So I would initially start off with um, naproxen twice a day, probably with a PPI um, um, cover, and um, then I'll speak to Nick, and then it really depends on um, what joints and how many are involved. Um, I'll probably hand over to Nick, because he actually does do the joint injections, which I don't do. <laughs> Yet. And, uh, and I think the way that we like to work in rheumatology is that we very much want to support the local uh, treatment of patients. And so sometimes, you know, Dana and I have been working together for a fair time now that, you know, if Dana's thinking about methotrexate, then I'm not going to st necessarily stop that unless there is a feature in the history that makes me think, oh, do you know what, we just need to have a second thought about this, let's just stop and have a think, and so I might see first. Yeah. But there wouldn't be a reason necessarily why Dana couldn't start treatment and then I'd follow up with an examination afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and so when it comes then to treatment beyond the non-steroidal, um, and you have to bear in mind with the non-steroidal that 
it works in two ways. There's the analgesic effect, and then there's the anti-inflammatory effect. And the anti-inflammatory effect is said to not really occur until after about two to four weeks of consistent treatment. Mm. And so patients will take the um, non-steroidal, typically ibuprofen, as and when, but that won't build up an anti-inflammatory effect. So it has to be consistently three or four times a day, ibuprofen, 10 milligrams per kilogram. So we use up to adult doses, so up to 400 milligrams um, four times a day for, for, for ibuprofen, um, naproxen, I would refer you to the BNF, but we... You know. 5 to 7.5 milligrams per kilo <laughs> is what the BNF says. And I, yeah, like I said, I like the BD dosing for, for children. It's, it's easier with school. Fine, thank you. And there are other ones that we can use, um, uh, inc including the, the coccyps, mm. um, as well as diclofenac, which obviously they don't like in adults uh, because of the risk of, uh, of gastritis. And so there is, it's, when, when we're talking about medications, we have to be aware of what are the perceptions of our patients. And so if they've got an elderly relative who also has arthritis, um, who's taking these, these drugs, they're going to be worried about them because adults are told to worry about non-steroidals. Mm. So we have to be able to adequately reassure that the kids have, you know, are able to tolerate these drugs really, really well, and we are not seeing any significant side effects. Mm. There's the pseudoporphyria that goes with, with um, naproxen, but that's exceptionally rare. Mm. Um, and and I, don't, I don't counsel on that anymore. I've, I've seen in 20 years, I've seen one case. Right. Um, and so the, the, the next issue then is the disease modifying. Well, in fact, it's, well, what do we do beyond um, the use of non-steroidals? So there's two approaches. One, one is you want the rapid response to treatment, and so that's typically with steroids. Mm. That works very quickly with a joint injection within 24 hours, with by mouth, maybe a couple of days. Um, and then you've got the long-term treatment. So if we just deal with the steroids to start off with, and often we do both. We don't start with steroids and think, well, how are we going to respond, except for those with oligo. So we might just give a steroid injection to a child with one knee involved, and see how they go because we know that benefit can be up to 18 months. Mm. Um, the choices are um, steroid by injection, under six, typically in theatre, older than six, and confident or with confident parents. We might actually do it in clinic with um, internox cover, mm. but that's with confidence of the child, the parent, and the clinicians in the room. Mm. The alternative to that is oral steroids. My worry about oral steroids is often it's give, too much is given and for too long. Mm. And so you need to be absolutely clear about how long you want to use it for. So if we're saying that methotrexate takes around about eight weeks to become, a fully, to become effective, then we might give a four to six week course just, just to bridge while we're waiting for the other drug to become effective. Mm. Um, so we rarely would use oral steroids without changing the, the, the disease modifier. Mm. And then if the child's got a lot of disability, so it's all happened rapidly, much many joints involved, including hip and neck, for instance, then we may admit as a day case to give IV steroids. And typically that will be, um, the conventional dose is 30 milligram per kilogram up to a gram. Again, 
they tend, that tends to be excessive and there's no reason to use that higher dose, even though that's conventional. Of which steroid, sorry? So that's methylprednisolone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we would use 15 milligrams per kilogram or less these days mm. uh, because of the side effects, especially teenage girls. They can, they can put on weight even with three doses of that mm. and, and not much afterwards. Mm. So I think, I think it's really important to consider that. Um, and so these days we use, so some centers use a lot of it. Um, our center will, will use less of it. And mm. we're really trying to judge, well, what am I trying to do with the steroids? So that's the first thing about steroids, and that's for acute management to get kids up and running. Mm. Then there's a long-term management, and so we would typically use that in three or more joints, or joints where we're particularly concerned, and I mentioned about wrists, I've mentioned about hips, and then often feet and ankles. Again, if it's just a knee or an elbow, then we might just do a steroid injection first and see how we go. Um, so with the disease modifiers, the typical one we use as standard is methotrexate. Methotrexate is a fantastic drug when it works and when there are a few side effects. Mm-hmm. The principal side effect is um, uh, methotrexate-associated nausea. That can be pretty grim. It can affect, if they're given the dose on a Friday evening, it can affect the whole weekend. Um, dose that we will typically, so we can give, it can be given in two ways, by mouth. Or, or by injection. One of the principal ages of children developing arthritis is between, typically between one and six. It's a, a spike then. Um, kids don't like the feel or the taste of, of methotrexate, and so they're often spitting it out. Mm. Um, that can be a real, really anxious problem um, for, for parents. You know, trying to pin their child down, trying to get them to tolerate liquids or tablets, and they're spitting it out. And do you repeat the dose? So we just go, let's take the fuss away. Let's just give it by injection. The injections are little pen devices, very small needles, very similar to diabetes. Mm. Um, and parents quickly learn how to give it. Uh, and most parents are, are, are excellent at doing it. And then we'll get children to take over from, from six or seven years of age, you know, mm. depending on their confidence. That's given once a week, both so tablets or or injections are given once a week, um, and then it's just this counselling about the risk of nausea and vomiting. One thing that parents get hung up about is whether it causes co- it's whether it causes immunosuppression, and immunosuppression is just a, a word that we bounce around without actually thinking. Well, what does that word actually mean? Mm. So does it mean that we're making the the immune system weaker? Well, there's no evidence to that. What we know is arthritis is excess inflammation. So can we not argue that we're bringing the excess inflammation down to a normal level? And that would be our experience. So from registries, we are not seeing more infections in those patients on methotrexate than those who aren't treated or their siblings. Mm -hmm. So the registry data is not showing any greater prevalence of, of infections. Nor is there evidence that uh, methotrexate causes more severe chickenpox, which again is another, another concern. And so we don't call it an immunosuppressant, now we call it an immunomodulator, because we want to give parents the confidence that they can go rock up to the school gate and not have to worry about their, their child contacting other kids. If there is chickenpox, then we can go, that's okay, we can give you some acyclovir, um, 
to the GP. You don't have to wait now in A&E while we get the zoster immune globulin, which can take forever. So we are now much more responsive and, and it's just to provide that additional reassurance. But we don't want patients or parents to, to become overly anxious. So we just adapt our language and how we talk about this. Mm. So as I say, methotrexate is, is the commonest. If there is a bit of nausea, we have options. Um, that And just quickly, without going into detail, that could be sulfasalazine or leflunamide in many patients, both given by tablets, mm. or we move on to the other, so to the biologic medications, which include drugs like etanercept and adalimumab, which are the TNF inhibitors, and then we have um, various other biologics that we could talk about in a different podcast. Yeah, no, that's, that's been really helpful. Thank you. And a really useful summary of a quite large variety of treatment options, you know. Um, I suppose, uh, just as a, a, a quick question, I don't know how quick it'll be, um, what, what proportions or what types of patients do you find respond to the different levels? Like how many patients can you manage just NSAIDs alone and how many patients have to go on to injections, DMARDs, etc.? What are you finding in your clinics? So, so my experience is that those with oligo, unless it was a really subtle arthritis um, that seems to have resolved on its own, mm. perhaps the GP has already given an NSAID by the time Dana or I had seen, mm. then we might not use a steroid injection, but most kids we're probably going to use a steroid injection. Mm. And as I said, the benefit of that can be up to 18 months typically. Right. And so we will counsel that. We'll say typically you're going to get a response between three and 18 months. There are certain joints that don't respond so well, so ankles, mm. subtalar joints don't, don't necessarily respond quite so well, nor wrists. Um, and so we're slightly more guarded about sort of how we um, talk about the response to treatment with, with steroid injections. So oligo um, on its own, just single joints, probably 30-40% of the population. Mm. Um, so they wouldn't be started on a DMARD. Yeah. Those who started on methotrexate, I mean, the data says that it's around about two thirds will have a response, probably half have a very good response. So a lot will stay on methotrexate and it, it can be in the right patient, fantastic drug. Mm. Uh, it's not as cytotoxic as well, which is one of the other things that we have to reassure parents. It doesn't work by uh, stopping cell division. It works by its effect on adenosine around cells. So it's a cell-cell communication. And that's the way it works also in your oncology. And so we've got, again, many miscommunications. And so parents, when they look, they think cytotoxic. So they think, oh my God, I can't possibly put my child on this really dreadfully toxic drug. Mm. I mean, if you just say, the sort of, sound of the word cytotoxic sounds dreadful. And so we have to be careful about how we use that. So that's again, comes back to the language we use, immunomodulator. Um, and we also have to be aware that what parents are looking at on the internet and many you know, really good sites are still using the wrong language because that's convention. Mm. So we have to be aware of that. Um, as I say, there's a good response to methotrexate, fantastic drug when, when there are a few side, side effects. Um, and then it's said that about three quarters will respond to, so if they, if they haven't responded to methotrexate and then go on to a biologic, about three quarters will respond to the biologic and it will last for some while in about 50%. Mm. 
if that gives you sort of an idea of spotted tree. That's been an excellent summary of you know the treatment options. I suppose the, the, the next question following on from that is how long do we need to be keeping these treatments going on for? How, how long do these kids have their arthritis for? What have you been finding in, in clinic? Well, from my point of view, um, we, we follow them up quite, quite frequently. We tend to see them every three months um, just to check whether anything has changed. And like Nick said earlier, if there is any systemic involvement, once you're on methotrexate or the biologics, we tend to treat for a minimum of 18 months, rather two years. Um, since being kind of inflammation free um, before we stop um, medication. There's always a chance that um, the arthritis will flare again but generally the oligo um, JRAs do really really well mm -hmm. and I've seen many of them just needing one joint injection and that was it and, and they've been absolutely fine. Nick will probably have more data on, on the long-term outcome um, yes, yeah, so so we counsel patients that so they're going to be on treatment for a minimum of two years, mm. and we, we really ideally want drug um, induced remission for at least a year. Um, some centres will think about six months, and they might check a biomarker, but the value of that biomarker is debated. So um, the duration of treatment of the of a biologic tends to be a bit longer because obviously they've had a refractory illness to typically of the, to the methotrexate and you've added this on top and often they've probably had complex joints involved mm. so we're a little bit more guided about when we might stop that and and I'm a favor of a patient parent doctor and nurse agreement about when would be the right time to stop because it isn't right we've had a year now of, of remission on drugs mm let's stop because there might be an exam coming up, there might be an important life event going over to, overseas, might be a holiday. So why would we stop a drug just before um, such and such things? And so it, it is very much patient uh, and medical agreement about when would be the best time. Mm. And then obviously we have to remember that these, are, these aren't cures, they are merely keeping the lid on the inflammation. And so then there's a risk of flare. So we always counsel about flare. You just, it's almost as though you can expect a flare. Mm. Um, and we would typically say it's like the toss of a coin, whether you're gonna have a flare or not. Mm. Um, most, the flares typically won't occur until about three to six months after, and about a third will flare then, and another third will flare a year or two later. But actually, you have this genetic tendency to arthritis for the rest of your life. Mm. And, and so the immune system may be triggered at any point. So it might be 30 years later when, when a child, now an adult, would, would get arthritis. Mm. And so that's an important part of the counselling. And that also explains about how long arthritis is in, in a young person. Mm. So, we're not very good at getting rid of all joint arthritis in all patients. So there's a significant proportion who will have a trace in joints and still have some residual difficulties, um, you know, three or four years later. And we call that minimal disease activity. Mm. But that's okay because what we've done is we've, we've and we, what we need to move on to is is actually the other part of treatment, which isn't about drugs.
drugs are the easy bit. Mm. The difficult bit is living with the condition, but actually getting back to doing everything. And one of the things that I press home to uh, patients about is that, okay, we've given you a, a diagnosis of a long-term condition, and that in itself is depressing. And there's all the fuss about having to manage that condition. But I will say, listen, I've looked after kids who have had continued arthritis, but still played basketball for Northern Ireland, have still windsurfed for England, have become Miss Teen Great Britain, if that's uh, what, what they would like to do. And so that's even with arthritis, but we can control the arthritis and we still want our young people to become elite athletes if that's all they want to do. So we have to make sure the mindset there is that it's to get back and do everything. And we want to get them to a place where it's almost like brushing your teeth. You're taking the meds and actually you're just going to have a normal day. You're just going to get on. And so we're trying to fill our patients with that, with, the, with an understanding that they're, they're going to have a normal life course and have the opportunities of others. Mm. We have to keep reminding patients of that and not just expect them to assume that even though the joints have gone, they will still potentially carry with them those thoughts. Oh, I've got arthritis. I've got to be careful. No, they need to get out there and they need to be physically active. And so to help with that, because doctors are not necessarily the best people to explain that, we then have physiotherapists, occupational therapists, and if need be, psychologists, because other thoughts then becoming fully ingrained, other thoughts around the nausea that, that, that they had with methotrexate that makes them really gloomy about the, the, the diagnosis. So we have a team then that helps to manage, like most long-term conditions now. And that is really, really important with um specialist nurses who are contactable via the phone who can give advice who can sort out little bits like you know simple things what do you do with a pen after it needs to be disposed of so you need a sharps box it's all these things you know that that affect patient day to day now the summer holidays they want to go on holiday so how are they going to carry their methotrexate and hand luggage things mm -hmm. like that and that i think has improved massively and and um, i'm really grateful to um, nick and joe and team here in cardiff that a lot of work has been done to drive this forward and, and support children and families the way they need to be supported? I, th I think Diana's brought up a really important point. So one patient, one parent um, who, who, who supports one of the, the, the major charities for arthritis, so that's CCAA, so Chronic, uh, Children's Chronic Arthritis Association. Um, so Emily has said that having arthritis in her child is like inviting a guest in who's there 24 7. it's constantly the back of your mind you've constantly got to be managing it mm -hmm. not because the disease is active but because there might be aches and pains and is that the arthritis or is that just the way they're using the muscles because pain in young people is exceptionally common musculoskeletal pain is very common um, but obviously if you've had arthritis you think well is that the arthritis and so that then lingers and nags how do I get hold of the methotrexate? Does it have to be from the hospital? It could be from the GP. And you know, for adults, we'll get their methotrexate from GP, but there's a resistance for it to happen for kids. One can understand why, but it's not necessarily a strong rationale. And so there are lots of difficult, niggling things that just keep you going on. Look, we as clinicians need to understand, including yeah. the methotrexate that Dana has talked about before, and how that can really drag down a weekend and affect family, kids, um, and their family life. And perhaps they don't go out because they're miserable with the nausea. We need to be alert to that. Now, the people who manage all of this, 
and not the dogs. Mm. What we haven't mentioned is Fiona and Portia, who are our nurses, and the key worker for all rheumatology services is the, is the nurse, the clinical nurse specialist, mm. and they do a vital job, and their job is to be as accessible as possible to, to the patients. So we're lucky, obviously, because we're the tertiary service, that we have a nurse specialist, but Dana can refer to them, and so she's part of the team, and will so it doesn't have to involve myself or Joe as the consultants. Um, Dana will just just get Fiona and Portia to help support, and so it works really really well that way. Fab, that's really good to hear. It's incredible to hear how much oh, I hate using the term holistic, <laughs> but it is. But I think it's important, isn't it, that we think about all these other aspects of management. I think as I do a lot of frontline work nowadays, I often don't get exposed to all of this supportive work that patients get at home. So it's incredible that you have this sort of dedicated team of nurses, and it's very similar and perhaps it should have always been this way to the sort of things you hear from you know diabetic services and and um, cystic fibrosis services and that sort of thing so it's great to hear that these are the sorts of support networks we have in place now yes and it's all about um, empowerment of the patient mm. um, and that's the language that we talked about um, and self-management and we even have our patients now who produce their own YouTube videos about giving their own methotrexate. And oh, wow. we've got one, Lewis, I remember, who's a fab lad, who, who hated it, but he did his own YouTube at seven, showed everyone to do it, and he has not looked back since. Wow, that's incredible. Excellent, so I think that's a great um, point for us to stop for this episode. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to you both. Um, so thank you, Nick, uh, and thank you, Dana. Well, thank you for having us, and we're looking forward to some further episodes because um, there's a lot to talk about in rheumatology. Yeah. Yes, and thanks for seeing that. And, and Dana, this has been uh, very enjoyable. Thank you. Perfect. And I wanted to say thank you to both Nick and Dana for recording that episode for us. We're going to have a break from our main Dragon Bites episodes next week. Instead, we'll be bringing you a Dragon Bites Basics episode. So keep an ear out for that. That one will be aimed at medical students. I just wanted to say a th quick thank you also to Dr. Catherine Simpson, who's been kind enough to sponsor us on Patreon. We've decided we're going to close down our Patreon, but we'll find a new way to help people who are interested to contribute to us to keep this podcast running in the long term. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.